The minute that Russian tanks started rolling into Ukraine, we knew that a lot of this story would be about narrative. Not just because all wars are fought with words alongside troops and planes, but because this was Russia. A country famous for hiring internet trolls during the 2016 U.S. presidential elections, for setting up fake Facebook pages halfway across the world. A country that has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on outlets like RT to undermine real news outlets outside of Russia. It won't surprise you that for years, state-funded Russian media have been working overtime in former Soviet countries. And ever since it invaded Ukraine in 2014, Russia has been using Ukraine as a testing ground to spread disinformation. It's a repeated refrain from Vladimir Putin and his acolytes in describing Ukraine's democratically elected president, Volodymyr Zelensky, and Zelensky's cabinet. This gang of drug addicts and neo-Nazis that has settled in Kyiv and taken hostage the entire Ukrainian people. As you may know by now, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, has vowed to, and I quote, denazify Ukraine. Here's the problem, though. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is hardly a Nazi. He's actually Jewish. His grandparents survived the Holocaust. And over the last three weeks, he's also proven to be incredibly brave. So where does Putin get this idea about a drug-addled neo-Nazi enemy? And what's the point of spreading a narrative that is so false it barely makes any sense? One important thing to understand is that, you know, as far as Vladimir Putin is concerned, everything is information war. Mm. This podcast is information war, right? Our conversation right now is information war. I mean, the Kremlin establishment thinks of everything as information war. That's Natalia Antalava. She's a longtime journalist for the BBC who comes from the former Soviet country of Georgia. In 2016, Natalia co-founded a website called Coda Story. It takes a long view on the spread of disinformation across the globe. She's its editor-in-chief. And reporting on Putin's powerful disinformation machine has been Coda's bread and butter this entire time. Without doubt, Putin and his inner circle and the incredible propaganda machine that he has built are absolutely capable of the most outrageous, incredible lies Mm -hmm. that you can possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. But where they really win is where they exploit the truth. I think that's their most powerful weapon. And they're always on the hunt for the truth that they can exploit. Natalia says that Putin uses disinformation to both cloud the facts and to cloud morality. So not only do you not know what's true, but you don't even know what you believe anymore. The more confused we are, the harder it is to hold him accountable. This week, we talked to Natalia about the power of the narrative and how Russia has been using it to its advantage. We'll spend the whole episode on this story, bringing you the big picture of what's happened up until now and what could be happening next. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. When Natalia watches the news of the war in Ukraine today, sometimes she feels like she's having flashbacks. Natalia has covered Russian invasions before. In 2008, Russia invaded Georgia's South Ossetia region. They said it had to protect South Ossetians. Natalia was there. She was in Ukraine in 2014 first in Crimea, the Black Sea Peninsula that Russia annexed that March, and then in Donbass, the part of eastern Ukraine where two regions quote-unquote broke away from the country with the help of Russian soldiers and ammunition. 
Russian television manufactured that conflict. There was no war. There was no conflict. There were some legitimate grievances of the local population, um, but there was no conflict. Natalia isn't exaggerating. Without Russian TV, there would have been no war in eastern Ukraine in 2014. No fighting. No breakaway regions. You've been reporting on this for many years with CODA, but also as a reporter at the BBC. And I'm curious if there's like a date that you could count down from in terms of Russia's disinformation on Ukraine specifically. You know, I think it was probably Crimea. Disinformation has been a thing for for as long as wars existed, obviously, and the right. KGB and the Soviet Union brought it to to a new level. But what we saw in Crimea was was of a different scale. I mean, Putin brought in troops in Crimea and then told the world that those troops did not belong to Russia and they were not Russian soldiers. Mm-hmm. And he managed to confuse everyone so effectively, right, that we all ended up towing his line to an extent. Natalia is referring to February 2014, when masked gunmen in green fatigues showed up in the Crimean port city of Sevastopol overnight. They weren't wearing any insignia, and they took over Crimea's parliament and then took over its two local airports. A couple days later, on March 1st of that year, Putin got the Russian parliament to authorize force in Crimea. But he continued to claim that the soldiers who were already there weren't his. Then a referendum took place in Crimea, and Russia said 97% of Crimeans had voted to secede from Ukraine. But had they? This was an occupied territory. It was not a free vote. Putin didn't admit that his soldiers had been in Crimea until the following year. And this charade of soldiers that supposedly weren't soldiers and elections that weren't real elections was really complicated for journalists to cover. They didn't have the language to parse the doublespeak. So Putin got to control the narrative. I am convinced that every time that a Western media outlet um, said the phrase little green men, which is what Putin called the Russian soldiers in Crimea, he denied that they were his troops and he just called them little green men. Mm. And every time the Western media repeated that phrase, little green men, It just helped along the ultimate cause of the Russian propaganda and disinformation, which is to create doubt and muddy up the narrative. And, um, you know, he got everyone to participate in it. Next came Luhansk and Donetsk, the two breakaway areas in eastern Ukraine. The people there were dissatisfied, sure. These were coal mining towns who'd lost their industry over the years. But they weren't anti-Ukraine. Most of them actually supported the Maidan revolution against its pro-Russian government, which was happening at the time, too. Natalia says that if you went to the region, in the spring of 2014, there were barely any pro-Russian demonstrators at all. Actually, the streets were filled with thousands of pro-Ukrainian demonstrators participating in the Maidan revolution. But that was not the scene playing out on Russian TV. When you turned on the Russian television at the time, what you saw there was completely different. There you saw often using actually footage from the uh, Yugoslavian war, from the Balkans. You saw destruction of cities. You saw people being killed. It was Mm. a full-on fake war that was being played out on Russian TV in those largely Russian-speaking areas. And that was very confusing to people. And I think at the time, we as journalists made a mistake because we largely ignored that. We ignored the fake war 
that was happening on, on the television screens. And we didn't notice the moment where, you know, that fake war slipped off uh, from the television screens and moved into, into reality. So as Russia pumped in soldiers and ammunition while also pushing this narrative on its TV channels, separatists gained a foothold in Donetsk and Luhansk. Two fringe groups of rebels suddenly had the power. Ukraine retaliated, and about half of the population, some 2.7 million people, left during the fighting. Again, it all seemed like a charade until it wasn't. Natalia remembers exactly the moment when it all started to feel very real. In the summer of 2014, a ground-to-air missile hit a passenger plane going from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur. It was launched from Ukrainian breakaway territory, and the missile was Russian. You may remember Malaysian Airlines Flight 17, or MH17. And I remember realizing it very uh, clearly and in, in, frankly, in horror when I stood in the middle of this, you know, beautiful field full of sunflowers surrounded by bodies mm. of 298 passengers of MH17 flight that was shut down over Ukraine. And I stood there, you know, amid the wreckage of the plane that was, you know, spread over miles and miles and the bodies of, you know, children still strapped in their oh, God. airplane seats. And I thought, how the hell did this happen? This was, you know, for months and months, this war felt like a, like one of the hostile environment trainings that, you know, BBC sends you on before they send you into a war zone full of actors. But there was no reason for that to turn into the full-on war that it became. Yeah. Crimea had become part of Russia, but Russia didn't recognize Donetsk and Luhansk until just three weeks ago. Russia preferred to keep it an active conflict that would continue to destabilize Ukraine. The stalemate also fed this narrative that Ukraine was a country at war with itself. In the meantime, new authorities in Donetsk and Luhansk did everything they could to sever connections between their regions and Ukraine. And it's so, it, in some ways, you know, the inertia, the effectiveness of propaganda. And once, once the separatists, Russian-backed separatists, and there were Russian soldiers among them, took Donetsk and Luhansk, the Ukrainian TV channels were turned off. And, um, you know, very, very quickly we had the situation where, you know, people... Uh, people bought it, like people just started believing it. Natalia has this incredible story that shows you just how persuasive Russian TV channels were in Donetsk and Luhansk. It's a story where locals were convinced that a child had been killed by Ukrainians during shelling, even though they'd been in the city that day and heard no shelling at all. I remember uh, walking into a shop in Donetsk and overhearing two women lamenting, you know, talking about a 10-year-old girl who had died in, a sh in, in shelling in, in a certain part of Donetsk that day. Mm. And I was in that part of Donetsk that day, the, the day that they were talking about. And I thought, something doesn't sound right here. So I asked them some questions and they said, well, we don't know where, but we heard on TV that that's where we'd hap it happened. And so we tried to track that story and find that 10-year-old girl. And, you know, we went to that part of the city and we spend hours talking to everyone in the streets. But right. everyone that we talked to knew that a 10-year-old girl had died. 
Mm. You know, we went to the city's morgue, the only morgue where a body would have been brought. We looked everywhere and there was absolutely in the city where everyone was convinced and was mourning a 10-year-old victim of the Ukrainian shelling, there was just, we could not find any evidence of her except for a local commander who was the one who, you know, he told us on camera, yes, 10-year-old child had died. And at the end, you know, in a very lucky coincidence, I managed to get Russian television reporters on camera who told me that there is no girl. It was made up. Wow. The whole story is made up. Here's Natalia from the BBC broadcast she did that day in 2014. You get used to lies in this war, but sometimes this cynicism, like right now, it's just mind-boggling because people that we talk to believe that a child has died and that's the um, sort of information that they get that fuels hatred that drives this war. This story that Natalia was able to fact-check echoes countless other pieces of fake news that circulated in eastern Ukraine and in Russia. And the sudden appearance of these fake, outrageous stories may sound familiar because it was happening around the world, too. In 2016, a conspiracy spread in the U.S. that Hillary Clinton was abusing children in satanic ritual. A Russian-speaking girl was allegedly raped by refugees in Germany, stoking fear of migrants. The murder of British MP Joe Cox was rumored to be an inside job done to sway opinion on the Brexit vote. All of that is false. Not all fake stories come from Russia, but these were at least amplified by Russian trolls. And it gave rise to a whole generation of fact-checkers. Stopfake.org in Ukraine, factcheck.org in the U.S., The New York Times was doing it. It became a genre of journalism. But here's the kicker. Now, fact-checking has been turned on its head, too. Today, in the war against Ukraine, Russia is using its own fake fact-checking websites to debunk real information and call it fake. I was struck in your newsletter, you talked about these fake fact-checkers in Russia that are basically labeling real information about the war as fake news. And it seems like an example of what you're talking about, how like inside out and upside down (laughs) Russia is able to make this narrative. Can you talk about that? The fact-checking website that that was rolled out by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs just last week, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, is another example of that. You know, just taking something that uh, is deployed in the West, that works in the West, that is familiar to the Western reader and internet user. You know, you kind of know what it is now when you come across uh, a headline and a photograph and it has fake sort of written across it. So Russia is now doing the same thing. They have now created this website. It's in six languages, including Mandarin. And clearly a lot of money has been spent on it. And that's what they do. I mean, literally, it's very simple. Literally everything that you see in the pages of the New York Times or the Financial Times or, you know, uh, BBC or CNN, they will take that and they will say, fake news. (laughs) Kiev bombed, fake news. Uh, A maternity hospital bombed in Mariupol. Fake news. Uh, Ukrainian men joined the war effort. Fake news. Uh, And yeah, it's super simple and bewildering. And it works. So how can this be? Russia puts out fake news and gets local and international journalists to repeat it. News sources put out real factual coverage of a horrendous war. And Russia labels it fake. 
how are Russian state media getting away with this? Who's believing them? To understand what is going on here, it's helpful to keep two things in mind. One is that for people in Russia, it's really hard to get independent information. And that's just gotten much, much worse. Russia recently adopted a law where police can arrest you for just mentioning the word war or invasion in reference to Ukraine. This, of course, includes journalists. And the other thing to remember is that facts just don't matter as much as narrative. There are studies that show this. When people hear a piece of information that they find credible, they remember it, even after they know it's been debunked. If you're the kind of American who feels so alienated by mainstream politics that you believe Hillary Clinton drinks the blood of babies, debunking that one story isn't going to get at the bigger problem. Natalia says Russian propaganda is incredibly good at exploiting this. The Kremlin is very good at two things. They're very good at, at their audience targeting. Yeah. They understand their audiences really well. They're very good at... Um, looking, often doing it very, very much on the cheap. Uh, they're, but they're, they're very good at identifying local grievances, identifying the local actors who will be happy in peddling uh, these grievances. And these mm. are often very legitimate grievances, right? Right. Um, and then tapping into them. In Russia and parts of Ukraine, the narratives that have been most successful are the ones that frame Russia as a protector, because that plays off both pride and fear. The pride came first. Playing off the pride has engaged people who, like Putin, felt humiliated by the end of the Cold War. It framed Russia as the heroic victor of a fight against fascism, which it was almost 80 years ago. But who's counting? A well-crafted narrative can defy space and time. There was a period when you would turn on TV in Russia and you would feel that you are living in 19, it's, it's 1945, the Second World War just ended and we're celebrating the victory. And mm -hmm. this is what the Russian public was basically force-fed for over a decade. Um, and not, not just on the news bulletins, but in cinema, in documentaries, in art, in culture. You know, we saw... The Stalin's cult come back. Uh, we saw this glorification of the Second World War and that idea of the Soviet soldier being brought back. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons why the Russian public today is buying something that is so bewildering to the Western audience, which is this idea of denazification of Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. It makes no sense to uh, someone who hasn't been sort of brainwashed and uh, force-fed uh, the Second World War propaganda for 10 years. But to them, it does. And then there's playing off the fear. It's been harder for Putin to come up with who exactly Russia should protect itself against or why. But by 2014, shortly before invading Ukraine, Putin had found an enemy. It's the very narrative that in 2014, 2015, fighters in eastern Ukraine would suddenly be telling me, I'm fighting on the Russian side because I don't want Europe to come here and force me into gay marriage. Europe is coming and they want to impose a gay marriage on you and you need to fight for your land. They're worried that they will that gay marriage will become legal or allowed where they are or that they will have to. I think it depends who you ask, yeah. but I've certainly met people who say people will be forced into gay marriage. Wow. 
Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're the myths that are sort of like slightly more insane and more radical, and then there are ones that are a little bit more understandable. If it sounds unhinged to you that LGBT people from Europe would be coming to Ukraine and Russia to turn everyone gay, it is. But consider that it's part of a much broader narrative that Russia's adopted since 2014. And the narrative was exactly... And the narrative was the West, the decadent West, is destroying the family values that we hold dear and that are the very basis of our societies. And we're there to protect them. And um, the gay men and women are on the front line of the Western attempt to attack us and our traditional society. And Mm. that is something that resonated among conservative communities in Russia and in the in the Russian neighborhood, but also, you know, much further away. This quote-unquote traditional values narrative, it's far-reaching, and it's something that Putin is using actively to justify Russia's current war with Ukraine. In Russia, you see it lots of places. Maybe you've heard the term gay Europa, Putin's play on Europa, that tries to portray all of Europe as, well, gay. Maybe you know that Russia repealed its domestic violence law because women should be subservient to their husbands and because to suggest otherwise is pro-Western. But it's also something that's resonated beyond Russia, to right-wing Brazilian President Bolsonaro, to anti-abortion activists around the world. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I sat down with Steve Bannon and Steve Bannon was going on and on about how, you know, Putin is really the protector of, uh, of, of family values. Natalia is talking about American right-wing pundit and former Trump advisor Steve Bannon. But it's important to also point out that Russian narratives aren't only spreading among conservatives. Take the war in Iraq, which has become a big left-wing talking point against any involvement in any war. Russia managed to uh, completely take over, you know, a very legitimate discussion about the wrongs of the Iraq invasion um, and capture the far left, but also not so far left segments of the, you know, Western audiences um, and, uh, you know, turn the whole Iraq uh, debate into just this never ending, exhausting whataboutry. What Natalia is saying here is that Russia is using our sins, our deepest wounds, our hypocrisies against us to further divide us. Racist policing, Western involvement in the Middle East, profiting off alliances with countries that have bad human rights records. It's a way of taking away Western countries' moral high ground. And for Putin, it's a way to claim more strength for himself. I think uh, America's hasty and chaotic and humiliating for America's allies' withdrawal from Afghanistan played a role in Putin's decision to be even bolder, even more audacious than he was before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the um, Barack Obama's red line in Syria that was, you know, drawn and then ignored, turned Putin into a more audacious, <laughs> bolder uh, dictator, the result of which we see today. And political leaders, you know, we, they need to stop drawing red lines that they're willing to then ignore. Because each time it happens, you know, the autocrats around the world, and we're not just talking about Putin, there are a bunch of them and they're learning from each other. And they are picking up on those cues, even if they don't concern them directly. The thing that makes Ukraine's President Zelensky stand out 
And the reason Natalia believes he's won the narrative in Ukraine is that he doesn't waffle or hedge. He's clear in what he stands for, European values. It's a point he's made himself many times. Today, the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine, we are fighting for the values of Europe. What he means is that he's fighting for freedom and tolerance and against Russia's repressive corruption. These are values that Europe itself isn't always so great at defending. But Zelensky is walking the walk. There is no ambiguity. And Putin has lost the narrative, maybe not in Russia, but in the eyes of the world. It's hard to claim the role of protector when you've started a war against Nazis that don't exist. One note on the Nazi thing, by the way, and I say it because I've seen it reverberate in American left-wing sources. Yes, there are some ultra-nationalists in Ukraine, but I'll let Natalia say it. Yes, Ukraine does have, a, you know, far, a far-right movement. So does every other country in Europe or most countries in Europe. You know, it's not right. all that different, but it does have a Jewish Jewish president and mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be denazified. I mean, the whole thing is just absolutely bizarre. So what now? The narrative war, like the actual war in Ukraine, is not over. Though the playing field is pretty different now. In the last three weeks, social media companies, including Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, have banned Russian state media outlets. Putin, in turn, has shut down Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. I'm curious, you know, where you see his disinformation, misinformation campaign going from here. Um, I think he's in the process of working it out. Um, so I think they're now looking for both the vacuums to fill. We've talked about that. So I think they will be very actively looking for where they can sort of wedge in with anything that, you know, creates uh, doubt and confusion among mm-hmm. Western audiences. I think they're also coming up with new narratives, I mean, or or rehashing the old narratives. I mean, one that has come up again and again is the biological weapons. I want to be really careful here. This biological weapons narrative is a conspiracy theory. It's a pretty high-level one. It's been recently mentioned by Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. That does not, by any means, make it true. You know, Lavrov has now said that one of the reasons Russia invaded is to stop um, the Pentagon-run biological labs that are in Ukraine that pose a threat to Russia. It's an old thing. Russia has built a whole again, disinformation campaign around Mm -hmm. Pentagon-run labs uh, in the former Soviet Union. It's true that they exist uh, because U.S. Department of Defense put a lot of money into refurbishment of some of the Soviet-era biological labs, um, in many cases to stop them from leaking uh, the pathogens Mm. uh, and so on. So there are these labs that have been funded and, you know, they have played a very important role during COVID and so on. But the Chinese and the Russians are now actually saying that COVID may have originated in one of those labs. And I mean, it's all, so they are going on an offensive again and, uh, you know, pushing those, those narratives. And I think they will exploit successfully the water battery that we talked about um, the racism, legitimate racist argument. Um, We can already see it being exploited by the Russian state media. You know, why are Ukrainians welcome, you know, in a way that Syrian and Yemeni refugees and Afghans were never welcome? It is actually a legitimate question, but Russians will exploit it. And uh, again, you know, 
that's a good uh, kind of good example, good reminder for us to address the hypocrisies of our own systems. Yeah, that's a really good example. It's sort of like um, both things can be true. Can the West, can the media, can the social media figure out how to how to hold both? That's right. I think it's a what about train. I think it's incredibly potent and incredibly dangerous. And you know, yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't go to to a friend's funeral and say, "I'm really sorry, your father died." But what about my father who died last year? Right. You know, you don't do that. So we shouldn't be doing it in this conflict either, in this war either. But we need to be addressing all these things in better ways and more constructive ways, uh, instead of letting those who hate us manipulate these arguments. So what can we do to support Ukraine? President Zelensky will tell you that fighting for Western values involves actual fighting by enforcing a no-fly zone over his country. Many governments are providing military and humanitarian support. Individually, you can donate to aid organizations. Natalia's suggestion, though, is more modest. She says that, at the very least, you should give it your time. I think the most important thing is... Um, is the simplest thing. And that is giving Ukraine kind of the gift of attention Mm. and keeping yourself informed and being extremely aware of what it is that you're consuming and being extremely aware of a possibility of manipulation because a party in this war, you know, wants you to think in a certain way. Um, I mean, obviously, so does Ukraine, but the Ukraine's narrative here is... Is much, is much clearer in many ways than Russia's. Natalia, thank you for your insight, for your reporting, and for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Please keep in touch. I would love to hear your thoughts on the show, your questions, your compliments, your complaints, your ideas. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. Those go straight to me. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me mostly on Instagram and sometimes on Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can also find Natalia's Twitter and some links to her reporting in the show notes. I've also linked to Coda Story's newsletter on disinformation, which she writes, and I would really recommend. It's an excellent source of news. The FT is making key Ukraine coverage free to read to keep you informed, so you can find that link in the show notes as well. And also a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT if you want to support our journalism and get access to all of our reporting. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link. Also, as I've mentioned, FT Weekend is hosting its first U.S. edition of the FT Weekend Festival in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center on May 7th. It's going to be great. We've got novelists Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and Elizabeth Strout. We've got media icon Tina Brown, CIA director Bill Burns. And there will also be tons of colleagues you've heard on the show. Alec Russell, Jancis Robinson, our wine expert, Joe Ellison, Jillian Tett. Peter Spiegel of Who Wrote the U.S. Constitution fame. It's going to be very fun and very thought-provoking. I've put the details and a discount code in the show notes. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my amazing team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. And Breen Turner is our sound engineer, with original music by Metaphor Music. 
Topher Forges is our executive producer, and special thanks go to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Thank you. Please take care, and we will find each other again next week.